Praise indeed. Turn, if you would, to our passage in Luke. We pick up where we left off last Sunday in Luke chapter 6, verse 37 through 42, page 863 in the text there in your bulletin. As you turn there, and before we read, there's a bit of a picture lesson this morning that I've thought about during the week, and it's from, in it, from the year 426 A.D. Heraclius, the assistant of Augustine of Hippo, took the pulpit for the first time as Augustine stepped aside and left being the senior pastor of the church. And as he took the pulpit, Heraclius uh, thought of himself and his inadequacy and his first word it was the cricket chirps. And he looked at, a, at a, uh, Augustine and said, the swan is silent. And I think you have a bit of a picture today as you see uh, what's here before you. What he missed was that the swan was never silent. Even today, Augustine's influence is upon us. John Piper actually spoke a message in 1998 with that very title. Augustine's influence on us and maybe the most influential man from the time of Paul the Apostle to the Reformation was immense. The, the church was in infancy and he brought core doctrine to the church that has affected the church even today. And I bring this to your mind as we're about to read this passage because the passage is somewhat perplexing. It's a little bit complicated. And I think we have to reach hard into those core understandings that we know as we come into perplexing texts that help us understand what is being said there and is applicable to today. The church is half Augustinian, half Pelagian today. The church is half Calvin, half Arminian today. The church is half grace and half works. And these today, I think, speak specifically to us and helps us be confident of those foundational truths that we have from early time on. Let us read the text. Again, we are in Luke chapter 6, verse 37 through 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the long log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. 
This is the Word of God. And what do we know about the Word of God? Please be seated. Told you. To understand our text this morning, I think, you know, Jesus, for me, Jesus has that Eastern mind and he moves a little bit like this, and I'm a Gentile and I move like this. So I kind of had to do, remember in high school football, you know, you ran through the play and you ran through walking through the play and everybody went there and then you went again, you went through it again. So that's what we're going to have to do today is we're going to have to go through it once and then we go through it again. But what the difference is, is it's going to be the same play the first time we're going to kind of, without a better analogy, we're going to go through it sign up from, it's the same play, the offense is running their play, the defense is running their play. We're going to go through it once, kind of with the defensive side, and then we're going to go back go through the whole play again from the offensive side, and that's how we understand it, right? Simple enough. <laughs> what I do want to point out to you, it's been a while since we, um, I want to kind of set you in the setting. It's not really a review, but I want to point out that uh, what we have been told by our pastors is that this is the Sermon on the Plain, and very good, very well, uh, but it looks amazingly like the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew. Um, but there are truly distinctions even in the introduction to the, ser- to the sermons. First of all, in Luke, he says, uh, Christ came down. Uh, and in, in Matthew, it says, He went up. So a definite distinction there, right? It also said that He stood with them to give them this sermon. And in Matthew's account, He sat down. And it also says that He came onto a level place. And, of course, in the Matthew account, he went up on the mountain. And then, uh, last of all, it was with his disciples in Luke and a great multitude. And in the Matthew account, it was with his disciples. So, whether or not it's the same sermon, just uh, accounted differently in, in Matthew and in Luke, I think, for sure, they both are wanting to bring different things out of it. In some ways, you know, going up on the mountain and then there's this... Um, high and lifted up view, I think, from the Matthew account. And then on the level plane, it's sort of this on the level plane account from the Luke account. And so whether it's the same sermon or not, I think they're both wanting to bring different aspects of it to us. If, you, if it may be the purpose of Christ, maybe the sermons are delivered in a different way at different times because he too is bringing different aspects of it to us. When he preached in Luke, he said, more rawly, more earthly, you know, it was poor. But in Matthew, it was poor in spirit. When he said, um, when you, uh, blessed are you, when you weep, you will laugh. But in Luke, in Matthew, it was, you would be comforted. When he says, um, you are hungry now, in Matthew account, it was hunger and thirsting for righteousness. So there was this sense of, there's a difference here of sort of, I, I categorize it in my mind as a lifting up on high and then this on the plane attitude. Also in the, um, in the Luke account, it, you have the woes, which are not even uh, present in the Matthew account, but it's woe to the rich, woe to those who are full, woe to those who are laugh. And then it was the converse of those, if you are full, you will be hungry. Very raw, very on the plane, very with me here on this earth, is I think through those elements. 
Last week we talked about the portion of loving your enemies. In the Luke account, he says to be merciful as your Father is merciful. In the Matthew account, he says to be perfect as your Father is perfect. Is the difference in the way those two sermons end. So definitely different for us and puts us in a different frame of mind. Not unusual really to have this mixture with, between the high and lifted up and the more level plane of which we live. Look at the Ten Commandments. The summary of the Old Testament law. Two tablets, right? The tablet over here was no other God, no graven image, no Lord's name in vain, the Sabbath day. And over here, honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not covet. Do not bear false witness. The high and lifted up and the level plane. Same way in the Lord's Prayer, which we'll all uh, recite in a few minutes. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then from the level plain in, give us our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Helpful thoughts as I think we come into that passage. Also, I want to remind you of what a day this was. We are well into this sermon here in chapter 6. But it begins with that this multitude of people came to hear him. And he came down on this plane to meet them. And in that multitude there were many who wanted to simply hear Christ. Well, that's what we're doing here today. But in order to give weight to his words, there were also those there that needed to be healed. A multitude of people that needed healing. And the scripture adds that some were even tormented with unclean spirits. And it says that they all sought to touch him because there was power coming from him. And so all those there were witnessing this marvelous and miraculous day. Whether you just came to hear, you saw miraculous healings. You sensed all wanted to touch him because this power came from him. And he healed them all. Last week, your attention getter was love your enemies. So as Christ gave them the beautiful beatitudes and the woes, the next word he get to capture their attention was something a little foreign to them and love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's his way of capturing them. And for them, foreign, yes, but still a little distant, right? Because he's talking in a way Gentile Israelite, my enemy, right? A people of God, a not people of God. And he has a lesson which is radical indeed, but still not too close. Quite possibly today, we may be coming to the height of this sermon. This may very well be the key point that he's wanting to get over to this multitude on this great day as he spoke. And what's the attention getter? Judge not. And you will not be judged. Condemn not. 
and you will not be condemned. Now, I preached this sermon last week in Parrish, Texas. And I had a lot of, you know, measuring judgment this, judgment that. And as I thought about this week, I said, I got a whole completely different perspective of what's going on. What Christ is talking about is a system, right? He used to be talking about their enemies. And what the system is, is a system of judgment. It's a religious system that's been invented by the Israelites, basically. It's very close to him, home, and he's talking close to home. Notice he talks about this system, which is a system of judgment. And he talks about the leadership of the system, leading the blind. He talks about being a disciple in the system. He talks about being a teacher in the system. And he talks about your brother. So, contrary to last week, where the, where the portion of the sermon was about the enemy, today it's about the brother. It's about their life, their system, their understanding. It is right where they live. That's where he's hitting home. The system began during, I think, during the, the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. There they were. And they looked at their situation in this captivity and they saw that there was this, they sensed that there was this divine punishment for their neglect of the law. And so they began to scheme and to plan and to plot. And although the Pharisees, as we know in our story, really are not a sect of this system that started uh, really about 150 years before Christ, the system of which now is maturing itself into that Pharisaic system started six centuries earlier while they were in captivity. And so the system began to work its way up. And what they wanted to be ensured of is that they guarded this law and that this law would never be... Uh, tromped on again to the point that divine cursing captivity would ever occur. And so the two major uh, players in our, during Christ's time that we see most of all are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more of the aristocrats of the community. Their concern was indeed this protection of the law, but they also were just as focused as on protecting the priesthood. Remember, for years, 600 years or more, they didn't have this temple, right? And so the need for the priest and the things that the priest didn't need to happen. And so they, they had to keep this priesthood alive. And you'll see most of the high priests, although they began changing a lot, they were all out of the Sadducees. The Sadducees had the majority of the Sanhedrin. But they were not the people's party. The people didn't really relate because they were the aristocrats. They were the money. And they wanted to protect this political. They didn't want the Romans to get mad and interfere. They had that idea. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the people's party. A common man could become a Pharisee. And their, their major um, goal was to build this oral law this oral law that would become a hedge around the Torah 
be a hedge around the, the, the law and not be able to, so you had to penetrate the oral law and break that law before you got to the written law and therefore it would be this protection. And we'd never have this divine curse again on the nation. So they invented all this burden of legalism and it was a passionate attempt to every minutia, every dot, every tittle would be created. The leaders of the Pharisees were the scribes. The scribe would be over different portions of these Pharisees. And so a Pharisee did not have to be that brilliant on theology or on the law because everything that he was going to do was told to him by the scribe. So the scribe said, so the Pharisee would attempt to do. And he would attempt to make sure everyone else did as well. The system was steeped and rooted in the law and in judgment. In a way, it could in itself only end in judgment. A system built on judgment can only end in judgment. Romans says that in itself. It's ultimately going to condemn itself. Romans 2, 12 and 13 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the more knowledge, the more sin, the more sin, the more judgment, and it's a vicious circle that can never end in of itself except with condemnation. It's condemned from Romans. We learn that it's condemned by those that don't even obey the law. Romans 2 says, For the circumcision indeed is of value, and if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and a circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The letter of the law ultimately ends in condemnation. Matthew account of these few words judge not lest you be judged condemn not or you will be condemned he never matthew never uses the word condemn his very words though were tempted because it mentions measurement to add it to the portion of luke that talks about measurement but matthew never gets to that portion of luke about forgiveness and giving he's talking strictly about judgment. And he never mentions con condemnation because it's Matthew's, the portion in Matthew 
just gives the hypotenuse that it always, that judgment ends in condemnation through judgment itself. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Judgment leads to judgment. Judgment, judgment leads to condemnation. It's the math. Then he moves to the parable. In the parable, Jesus asks three questions. Question number one. Can a blind man lead a blind man? The obvious answer to that question, Jesus answers with a question himself, will they not fall into a pit? In other words, a blind man leading a blind man is a dangerous situation. They will fall into the hole. They will wander into traffic. It is dangerous, even deadly, you are blind, basically, he is saying, and your leaders are blind. That is the hypotenuse. A disciple, in verse 40, is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. In other way, there's no way to climb out. Your leaders are blind. If you're not blind going in, you're blind when you come out. Because a, t a disciple, a student, will not exceed his teacher. But your teachers are blind, therefore you are blind. Matthew 23, Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is the greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? You blind guides, straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. What a hopeless situation. Question number two, why do you see the speck in your other, in brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I want to ask that question differently. I want to say, how do you see the speck in your brother's eye when you see, have the log in yours? But the way Christ is questioning is, is exactly the way he wants it because it's a question about their heart. Why do you judge them when you haven't judged yourself? It's not a matter of how because it's so natural for us is the answer why. It's in my nature. I can't escape it apart from Christ. This is right where I am. That is why. Are you so blind you don't even recognize your blindness? Your own log blinded you to the point that you cannot see it, but you look past it 
Is that maybe why he didn't have to ask how? Romans, 3, Romans 9 says, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Question three. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, and when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. A summarization of that might be, Are you crazy? Can a blind man do eye surgery? Mark gives an account of just how difficult eye surgery is. Christ was in Bethesda and they brought him a blind man and he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and he said, Do you see anything? And the man looked and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. A difficult surgery it is, especially if you can't see. You know, it's so easy for us to read the account of David. And, and, and when Nathan comes to David and gives him this parable of the rich man and the poor man and how the rich man had sold this beautiful lamb from him. And David says, string him up. I'll string him up. Bring him to me. You're the man, David. And for us, we want to see these Pharisees perhaps as the foe of Christ. You know, they're there for the story. But no, they're you. They're me. They're us. We have found the enemy, and it is us. We are them. There, it is at a hopeless situation of a blind leading the blind. We are desperate. God has brought us together as a church. We're a motley crew. We have communication challenges with one another. We are in great danger of conflicts, different values, different goals, different gifts, different callings, different priorities, different expectations, different interests, different opinions, and the list goes on. What do we see in one another? What do we say to one another? What do we do to one another? My brother Rolf, when he was here, he used to call it one-anothering. Ken Sandy, in his book, uh, The Peacemaker, I, I liked his little chart, the slope of conflict. And when you got to, say, this portion of the, of the slope, which was a dome, you could see, okay, I could walk on that. You know, I'm in construction, I guess I'm looking what I could walk on. But when you get to the two edges, it's just almost vertical. It's straight down for you. So there's... The, the non-peacemaking 
portions are to the left and to the right. The left he calls peace faking. And to the right he calls peace breaking. The three modes of response on the left are on the bottom, suicide. Which is a deadly response, but something we can get into and we sometimes do experience. On the far right is also death, it's murder. Peace breaking, pretty much ends it. Okay? The next step up is flight, running away. We see that in the church. Ah, I don't like it here, I'm going someplace else. We run away, or I'm mad at that person, but you know what, we're large enough, I don't have to talk to them. We avoid them. The next step up is denial. No problem here. I'm not listening, right? (laughs) The next step over here is litigation and assault. We think, oh, assault. But don't we fall into that? Why do you say to your brother, let me help you get that speck out? We assault with our words. When we deny over here, it leads to bitterness. And that bitterness takes a large jump over here to the assault of words. So we've ascended down this passage in this defensive manner. Now let's look at the offense and walk through again. Now Christ wants to give you the other side of the coin. There is this gospel that begins in judgment and ends in condemnation. And now he's going to tell you about a different gospel. A gospel of forgiveness. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. It's a beautiful gospel. The forgiveness here is a form of luo. It's the basic Greek word. It's what we memorize everything thereafter. Right, Mark, with Greek? Yep. But it has a sense of letting go, loose it, loose it away, put it away, release it from you. If you release it from you, it will be released to you. As you release it away, it will be released away. Forgive. Give is granting. Bestowing can even be the form of yielding, surrender. As you surrender, it will be surrendered. It's a beautiful way of looking at it, right? But there's a degree of addition here in the passage that helps us understand it, but it adds some confusion sometimes. And it's the abundancy of this gospel. This gospel is an abundant gospel. It will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Now this putting into the lap is not foreign to to the audience of that day. They had these robes, and they would have a belt, and so they would hike up the road when they were in the market, so they created this great fluffiness, and they would dish it down, and that was their pocket, right? So you had a bowl of a robe, and as you went to the market to get your seed, they would pour the seed into your big pocket. And so this sense here of, even sit down so we can pour more. It'll be, and so shake it around so I can get some more in it. And 
press it down so we can get some more in it. It will be poured into your lap. It will be running over with abundancy is the picture that Christ is painting. In, in Isaiah, we kind of look at this from the opposite way to get the, the picture. Isaiah 65 is a very sad passage. It's where God says these words. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their foremost deeds. That's an abundant punishment, brothers and sisters. In Psalms, when the Israelites were asking for God, where are you? They called upon sort of this curse. They said, return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts for which they have taunted you, O Lord. It's a way to express here the abundancy. But there's a tension, isn't there? I mean, give and it will be given unto you. In a few minutes, we're going to say the Lord's Prayer. Pray like this, Christ says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, do you really want to pray that? I mean, all in just this week, I'm driving down the road. There's this slow, foolish person in front of me. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Right? But I went to Fort Worth, got a little turned around, lost. Eh, I don't know what I'm do I go left. Hey! Have a little patience, will you, brother? I remember I remember I used to walk to class in college most of the time. Daggum bicycle guys, they were just running over me and in the way. Come on, come on. Decided finally I'm going to ride a bicycle, right? What are all these people walking for? Get out of the way, get out of the way. It gets a little sticky. In the, in the uh, Lord's Prayer, He gives us the Lord's Prayer. It ends in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In verse 14, Christ gives us commentary on the prayer. The only part he gives us commentary is this part right here. For He goes on to say, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, 
neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Are you a forgiver? Do you forgive? For me, it makes me very nervous. Now, when I look back on the prayer itself, though, and this is not a sermon on the prayer, but is this a portion of the prayer? Well, all of a sudden, Christ has us stick in this huge gob amount of human ability in this prayer? I think not. Our, kingdom, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this daily bread. Daily, we need to pray to the Father for our bread. We don't have the ability to gather that bread. Lead us not into temptation because we can't deal with that. And deliver us from evil because we don't have the ability to that. Is the prayer saying, though, that we can forgive in such a way that that's what we desire the Father to forgive us? I think you have to uh, look at it in terms of another parable in order to truly come to grips with what it is saying. See, it is the immensity, the abundancy of forgiveness that needs to be in your mind and in your heart. And not until you recognize that volume, that abundant massiveness of the forgiveness that you have experienced, then there's no way that you can extend forgiveness onward. In order to understand the forgiveness, you must understand how far you've come from. You must recognize fully the log that was once in your eye. The log defined as a structural member, a tree trunk, a plank, something that would hold up a building. The speck is a piece of grass. In the, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, it's a time when Peter comes to the Lord and he said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother, it's in Matthew 18, verse 22. How many times, Christ says, not seven times, but 77 times. It can be compared to a king. When he sought to his servants to settle the debts, he found a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Now I looked up on the web trying to figure out what 10,000 talents of. It's all over the map. What the main point is, is that it's, um, an unmeasurable amount. That's the intention. We're going to call it $60 million in that day. $60 million is a lot of money. It's un unreturnable, unpaid back. Since he could not pay it back, the guy said, sell the man, sell his wife, sell his children, sell everything he has so that he can pay me back. The servant falls on his knees and he says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master released him and forgave him the debt. Well, that man goes out and he found a servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Well, I did all the searching and everything, tried to figure out what that was. Couldn't quite figure it out. But a very payable amount. We're going to call it like $12,000 in comparison. The man owes him $12,000. He seizes him. And he begins to choke him, saying, 
Pay me what you owe. And the servant fell down and he says to him the same words, Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refuses him. He puts him in prison until he'd pay you the debt. Well, other servants saw his actions and went back to the beginning. And, he, and the uh, master comes and he says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have had mercy. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, it's a heart thing. Can't look far too far ahead, but next week, don't tell Jordan. We're going to talk a little bit about the good tree, bad tree. It's a heart thing, right? It's where it comes. It's, you must see the log in your eye in order to, to remove the log in the other. Figure out where the issues are. Why are you offended? Why are you offensive? Is it a minor offense? Can it simply be overlooked and forgiven? Consider your attitude and change it. Count the cost. Readjust your course. Surrender your rights. Submit. Serve. Confess your sins. Bridle your tongue. Pray all night. Examine yourself. Forgive. Give. Speak the truth in love. Look out for the interest of others. Treat others as you wanted to be treated. Verse 31. Overcome evil with good. Seek godly wisdom and advice. Give godly wisdom and advice. Leaders, be shepherd to the sheep. Don't perform surgery while blind. Don't demand. Don't desire so that it overtakes you. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Don't punish. Don't control. The slippery slope has a side over here of a peacemaking attempt. And the first one is forgiveness. Forgive. Choose to forgive. Step up for that is to reconcile. Reconcile with your brother. Step up from that is negotiate. All these are semi-private. It's between you and the brother. It's the way to interact. But God's also given us this great thing called the church in the way in which we interact with one another. And in this gospel message, this church can give you um, accountability, uh, negotiation, arbitration. We can work in that way too, which are powerful in itself. And don't forget from the positive side of which we're looking here, he talks about the teacher again. Disciple cannot rise above him, but our teacher is an example. Jesus says to us, expect to be treated, we read it a minute ago in First Peter, as I was treated for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example so that you might follow the steps. You will be offended. Someone is going to attempt to offend you. Someone in this church is going to try to make you mad. You are going to suffer at the hands of another brother and sister. But, as Christ has said, prepare yourself to respond. He committed no sin, neither deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
It's a hard issue, as we've said. Also looking a bit ahead is the house. Where you had the difference in the two houses is that they dug deep, they worked hard, and they built a foundation. It's an effort. To finish up, there's a verse in Matthew that doesn't show up in our uh, passage. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. And it says this, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, I think there's several ways, a couple of ways you can look at this. First of all, is what we have here is holy. This church, church is the bride of Christ. It is what God has given us to exist in this world brother, while we one another in one another. And what he says is act in a way that is different from the outside. He separated enemies from brothers here in his sermon. And it is precious in the way in which he wants this church to react to one another. A way in which really will not work out there with the dogs and the hogs. They'll trample it. But here it's beautiful. Here it should work. It also is taken like this. That's more of the level playing. It's the gospel. The gospel of forgiveness. The gospel of forgiveness that's brought forth in giving and forgiving. A way which will be hard out there, trampled by pigs and hogs, by hogs and dogs but a way in which we're called to present it. The church is the community in which we've been given to exist. And to end, we cannot ignore the fact that there is indeed, if you, this makes no sense to you, it could be because I've made no sense whatsoever. But it could also mean that there's a huge log there that you just can't see past. Know this. There is a day of judgment. Acts 17 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. It's this man, Jesus Christ, who is the gospel, the gospel of forgiveness that we now celebrate and remember together. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the complexity of it and for the beauty of it. I pray, Lord, as we have looked into it, that this chirping cricket has not gotten into its way, but that indeed you have lifted the veil that is there. You have given people hearts and minds and understanding of your word. We pray now, Lord, as we continue to worship you this day, that you would be glorified and honored and pleased. And we pray as we go out and we attempt to live a life that is not based on judgment and condemnation, but based solely on forgiveness and the fullness that we have experienced and want to share with others, that you would be glorified and honored 
in a special way. It's this we pray. Amen.